All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this particular recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 44. And let's just keep the context in mind. The Jerusalem leadership has been engaging in various debates with Jesus in hopes of trapping him in something he said so that they could find a reason to arrest him. They want to do away with him. They want to get rid of him. They're using religious political type debates as a way to try to trap him. And so in our last recording, we saw that one of the questions they brought up was the question of taxes. And that was brought up by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Then some Sadducees came to him and they brought up the question of the resurrection. Well, here in this section, a scribe is going to come to Jesus and it's going to ask Jesus a rather familiar question. What's the greatest commandment? It was actually a question that was often discussed and debated among the rabbis of Jesus' day. And the reason for that was because they were all looking at for ways to try to summarize all the various parts of the Old Testament law. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it's this very same question that leads to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So the scribe comes to Jesus and he's going to ask him this question. Look at verse 28. One of the scribes. So you have the Pharisees and the Herodians ask their question about taxes. You have the Sadducees come in and they, they pose their story question. This scribe is presumably watching all of this and listening in. And so one of the scribes came up and heard them arguing. That's the idea of debating, wrestling, which was a very common thing between rabbis in the temple or in various places in Jerusalem. And so he hears them kind of debating and wrestling with these topics and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him. And so the scribes got a question of his own. And his question is, what commandment is the foremost of all? What's the greatest commandment? Now, this guy comes to Jesus and he's impressed. He recognized that he had answered them well. So he's impressed by Jesus' answers and he has a, a more positive disposition towards Jesus. Nevertheless, Matthew's version of this account, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, tells us he's still testing Jesus. Maybe not with the same sort of duplicity that the others were, but he wants to see how Jesus will answer this oft-debated question. And so he comes and he asks Jesus, what's the foremost commandment? And Jesus gives this answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. And so Jesus' first part of his answer is to quote the well-known Shema. That's what it was called among the Jews, the Shema, because the first word in the Hebrew version of this is hear. And Shema is the word for hear. And so this is the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And faithful Jews recited it every morning and every evening. And it affirms that Yahweh is God and that Yahweh is one. The word translated Lord here in Greek is Yahweh in Deuteronomy, in the Hebrew. And so Yahweh is God and Yahweh is one. He alone is God. He is the one true God. And it affirms that. And then it calls 
originally Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to love Yahweh with every part of their being, with all your heart, which more, more like our idea of will, not emotions. We tend to associate heart with emotions. They associate heart with the control center of the person, so more like our will. So love them with your heart. Love them with your soul, and the soul refers to the depth of your being, everything that makes you you. Love them with all of that. Love them with all your mind. That had to do with your intellect and your thinking and your reasoning. So all your intellectual and mental capacity, love them with that. And then all your strength, which is your physical capacity, your physical abilities. So love God with all that. In other words, every part of you, use it to honor and to love God. So Jesus quotes that in his initial response to this fellow's question, what's the greatest commandment? But then he goes on and he gives him a second. So the man had asked for the first most important commandment. Jesus also gives him the second commandment. And the second is this, verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So these two together, love the Lord your God with all your and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, there is no other commandment greater than these. This pairing of loving God and loving your neighbor actually reflects the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments and the Ten Commandments commandments are about loving God. The next six commandments are about loving others. And so this pairing is really an effective summary of the commandments. And this is Jesus's way of summarizing the entire Old Testament law. Well, the scribe likes Jesus' answer. As this was an off-debated question, verse 32, the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and that there's no other besides him. He's the only God. Yahweh is God. He alone is God. There's no one else. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Mark alone records this man's positive response. And that's what we get here. This man is open to Jesus' teaching, and he responds positively to what Jesus has said. And Jesus takes notice. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that this man had actually answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Asking and listening with a good and honest heart has actually brought this particular scribe to the very doorstep of the kingdom. And Jesus acknowledges that. And then, Mark says, no one dared any longer to question him. And so all these different attempts over the last few paragraphs that Mark has recorded for us have been attempts to trap Jesus, ask questions of Jesus, and Jesus bests them at every turn. And so they give up questioning him. But now, Jesus is actually going to have a question for them. A question trying to get them to read scripture a little more closely so that they can think more deeply and more accurately about who the Messiah is. And one of the things that means for us as we listen in on this debate is we learn more about how Jesus understands himself. Look at verse 35. And Jesus responded and began saying, as he taught in the temple area, so Mark is simply letting us know that they're not coming to him uh, questioning him any longer, but Jesus is still teaching in the temple area. And Jesus says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Remember, the word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. So how is it or how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
and that phrase, son of David, was a title for the Messiah. In fact, we saw the blind man in Jericho apply it to Jesus. And it would imply in Eastern thinking that the Messiah was less than David because he was his son. He's not over David, but under David as his son. And of course, David was the great hero king of the Jews. And so in Eastern thinking, while the Messiah may be great, he's still going to be lesser than the great hero king, David himself. So how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? And then Jesus is going to go on to quote from a Psalm of David, and the particular quote raises a problem about the Messiah being the son of David. Here's the quote, verse 36. David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, and so by the Holy Spirit or in the Spirit, really implies the inspiration of the psalm from the Spirit of God through David. So David himself said, in or by the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is actually one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's from Psalm chapter 110. It was a psalm that was seen commonly by Jews of Jesus' day as being about the Messiah. And one of the things that's important to make sense of it, particularly in the Hebrew version of it, is that in its original setting, when it was written in Hebrew, the first Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh. So literally it reads in Hebrew, Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai. So Yahweh said to Adonai. And it's that line out of this quote from Psalm 110 that Jesus is going to camp on. And Jesus has a question about the Messiah as David's son from that line since David describes the Messiah as my Lord. It's a question that really derives from an implication of this line. Jesus draws out that implication by asking a rhetorical question in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Right now, in view of Eastern thinking, David, being the hero king, should be over his son. And yet David here in Psalm 110 refers to the Messiah, because this verse was regularly seen as being about the Messiah, as my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Um, and so here's the problem. David sees the Messiah as greater than himself, not less than himself. He calls him his Lord. But how does that work if he's also David's son? And everyone acknowledged that this was about the Messiah. And everyone can see that David calls the Messiah his Lord. So how can he be his Lord and his son at the same time? Just think on that puzzle. That's really what Jesus is doing by asking this question out of this text. And the point is, is that the, the idea of the Messiah must, in some sense, be enlarged. He's port, part of David's royal lineage, but somehow he's also David's Lord. And somehow he's going to sit at Yahweh's right hand. And so we've got to expand our category of Messiah if we're going to understand him accurately. And then after that little snapshot, Mark simply notes, and the large crowds enjoyed listening to him, that his teaching was engaging and thought-provoking, and they loved to sit and listen to him. And then Mark goes on and adds several more snapshots, really three more snapshots in the section we're looking at here, all while Jesus is teaching in the temple area. The first is a really a critique 
of the scribes and the leaders. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching, so he's teaching in the temple area, and he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like personal greetings in the marketplaces and seats of honor in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive all the more condemnation. This critique aims really at their love of power, their love of self-importance, their love of high position, all of which really has been lying behind their challenges to Jesus that we've been reading about over the last several paragraphs. And in his critique, Jesus just lists off several very specific examples of the way that self-importance and love of position and status and power shows up in the way they act. They like to walk around in long robes. And so the idea is they have They've lengthened their robes. They've put long tassels on their ro- at the bottoms of their robe, all of which to make them look more pious and important. Uh, they they like personal greetings in the marketplace. They want everyone to come and acknowledge them, you know, for being scribe so and so and rabbi so and so. They like the seats of honor in the synagogues, and so in the synagogues they want to sit on the stage or in those seats that were positions of prestige in the synagogues or at a banquet. They want to be up near the head of the table, right by the the host of the banquet, so everyone can see how important they are. These are all just examples of their self importance and their love of position and power, and how they measure their status and their importance and really their identity by these kinds of things. Jesus says, be aware of that. Not only that, they devour widows' houses, he says there in verse 40. That is, their wealth and their power has come from taking land and even homes from widows rather than caring for them and standing up for them. And notice that this warning is really addressed to his disciples and to other followers of him, not to the scribes. It's a warning addressed to disciples, really. And so it means don't become like them. Watch out what they do and don't imitate this. Don't do this. Reject that love of position, that sense of self-importance. Don't become like them. Watch out for that sort of false self-serving religion. In fact, it gets all the more condemnation. Now, this little bit about devouring widows' homes leads Mark to put in another story here that happened in the temple area, verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. So he's still in the temple area, and he's now opposite the the place where people would put their offerings, where they would drop in their temple offerings. And so he sat down, he can see that, And he began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large amounts. The temple treasury probably refers to the offering box. The mission actually refers to 13 chests shaped actually like a shofar horn in various places around the temple to collect offerings. And so Jesus is someplace in the temple where he can see one of those offering boxes, and he sits there, and he's just observing how people put their money into the treasury, and he actually sees many wealthy people putting in large amounts, pouring in lots of coins out of their money bag into those those offering boxes. And then, verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two lepta coins, which amount to a quadrants. Now, this is important to understand the amounts of these coinage. Two lepta. 
These were the two smallest coins in Israel in circulation. It was worth about 128th of a day's wage. Uh, a common laborer would earn uh, a lepton in about four minutes of a 10-hour workday. So two lepta is only about eight to 10 minutes worth of work. That's how small this is. Like you could make that, an average worker could make that in about eight to 10 minutes of working. Mark notes for his Roman audience that it's equivalent to a Roman quadrant, which was the smallest Roman coin. In other words, this woman is indeed very poor. Like she doesn't have anything. And she brings these two tiny, cheap little coins being so poor. And she puts those into the offering. And then here's what Jesus says, verse 43, calling his disciples to himself, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. So here's all these rich people dumping their money bags into the offering box, right? Putting in large amounts. And she comes, brings these two tiny coins, hardly worth anything. And Jesus says, she put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For, here's the reason for it, for indicates he's explaining, he's giving the reason, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And so her tiny little amount, her eight minutes worth of work, right, barely anything, stands out because she still gave even though she had virtually nothing to live on. And in contrast to those who, in their greed, devour widows' houses, she gives in trust and worship of God. And she gives, Jesus says, therefore, more than all the other contributors, even though it was a little bit, because she gave out of her poverty, she gave with a good and worshipful and trusting heart. And this actually helps us see what Jesus values. Jesus doesn't value religious show. He doesn't value necessarily huge gifts given out of religious show, out of religious self-importance. Now, what does Jesus value? Well, Jesus values humility and faith that gives itself wholeheartedly. And that's really at a central theme of this whole section. Um, that Jesus really wants us as his people to love God with our whole heart and out of that to love the people in our sphere of influence, our sphere of context, our neighbor as ourself. Jesus wants us to entrust our resources to God, whether a lot or a little, and give out of a good and worshipful heart. And that's what this woman does. And she is praised by Jesus, not because she gave the most money, but because she gave out of the right kind of heart. She put in all she, she owned. Her She loved and served God wholeheartedly. And that's Jesus' goal for each and every one of us. And in the spirit of that story, can I just say to each and every one of you who gives generously to support the listener's commentary, thank you. Thanks a ton. Whether your gift is uh, $500 a month or your gift is $5 a month or anything in between, when you give out of a wholehearted devotion to Jesus and you do so to support this ministry because you believe in uh, what it's doing and the impact it's having, you, like this woman, please Jesus and do well. So thanks a ton for your support of this ministry. 
I pray that God would bless you for it and that he would bless the work of the listener's commentary for his glory and for his namesake. Thank you so much.